Stories of Communism 8, Concealing Your True Self. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Well, we've had a few more very serious episodes, so I think now it's time for another lighthearted one. Today we're going to discuss a wacky sci-fi spoof from the 1970s Poland that, at its heart, concealed some pointed commentary on its communist government. I'm talking about The Star Diaries, a collection of satirical science fiction stories by Stanislaw Lem. In particular, today we'll be focusing on The Eleventh Voyage, one of the stories from that volume, focusing on a planet run completely by robots. Lem is an unusual figure in this podcast for a number of reasons. Unlike most of the other authors we discuss, he was not a dissident or an exile. He was a successful author who lived in Poland throughout its communist period. He didn't originally set out to be a science fiction writer, but after realizing the constraints of his government censorship early in his writing career, he turned to science fiction as a way to escape them. While the rules of his time could only tolerate propaganda such as socialist realism in books set in modern times, they didn't really have rules that applied to crazy fantasies about aliens and robots. Although politics wasn't usually the central focus of his writing, the looser censorship did enable Lem to sneak political points into his work. Lem's science fiction novels and stories actually contain an interesting mix of topics. Some are dense philosophical meditations on the future of humanity. The Wikipedia page actually mentions that some of his books are used as texts in college philosophy classes. But my favorites of his are the bizarre satires. Today's focus, The Eleventh Voyage, falls squarely into that category. It tells the story of a famous star pilot, I. John Tickey, who's sent to investigate a planet taken over by robots. It starts out with a glib summary of Tickey's somewhat strained relationship with machines, as he gets angry with his robotic servant. There were mice nesting in my meteor collection. While I was making coffee, the milk boiled over. The electrical numbskull had hidden the dish rags along with my handkerchiefs. I really should have taken him in for an overhaul back when he started shining my shoes on the inside. Tiki is soon summoned by a group of corporate executives who explain to him that a computer mutinied on one of their ships several decades ago and crashed it into an unknown planet named Circea. It then started a new society populated entirely by robots and with a deadly hatred of humans. The youthful nationalism of the Rob Cole had taken the form of an unreasonable hatred of all things human. The Circean press never tires of repeating that we are abominable slave owners who illegally exploit and prey upon innocent robots. The robots printing houses are turning out on a mass basis liftless and flyers addressed to the robots of Earth and in which men portrayed us grasping bolt suckers and villains are called injurious names. Thus, for example, in the official pronouncements, we are referred to as mushelids and the whole human race as gook. The company has apparently sent thousands of agents over the decades to try to investigate or negotiate with the mad robots, but none has returned alive. So, as often happens in these types of stories, Tiki bravely steps forward and volunteers to investigate. He'll disguise himself as a robot and sneak into their capital and see what he can find out. Naturally, he needs to be careful of a few issues. Mr. Tiki, said the makeup man in charge, there are a few important things you must remember. The first is not to breathe. 
You must be mad, I said. How can I not breathe? I'll suffocate. A misunderstanding. Obviously, you're allowed to breathe, but do it quietly. No sighs, no panting, no puffing, no deep inhalation. Keep everything in an audible, and for the love of God, don't sneeze. That would be the end of you. Tiki successfully lands on the planet and infiltrates the robot society, making friends with a few of the locals. He tries to participate in their social activities, including the theater. They were putting on a play called Carvaceris. It was about a handsome young robot mercilessly persecuted by man, that is, by mucilids, who douse him with water, sprinkle sand on his soil, loosen his screws so that he could kept falling down, etc. The audience clang angrily. In the second act, an emissary of the computer appeared. The young robot was freed, and the third act dealt at length with the fate of man which one might imagine was not particularly pleasant. He spends some time getting to understand the strange machines around him, but one day notices something suspicious, a robot heading towards a berry patch. While berries are tasty, they should be of no use to robots. As he suspects, it turns out that this robot is also a disguised human. Relieved to find a likely ally, Tiki reveals his own identity and makes arrangements to meet his fellow human to discuss their next steps. Alas, it turns out to be a trap, the fellow human, despite their shared nature, has turned him into the authorities and he's placed under arrest. This is a pretty serious situation for Tiki, given what he saw in the recent play. His robot public defender is not very helpful. Tell me, Kostrom Fedrox, what am I accused of? Of mucilidity? He replied at once. A capital offense? And also of the intent to wicken treason upon us? Of spoilment on behalf of Gukum? A blasphemous conspiracy to lift in a hand against his inductitude? Do that suffice excrescent mucilage? Confess you to these crimes? Are you really my lawyer? I asked. For you speak like a prosecutor or an examining magistrate. I am your defender. Good. I confess to none of the above crimes. The sparks they shall fly, he roared. Tiki is saved when, at his sentencing, the computer offers him a deal. He can keep living in the city in his robot disguise as long as he agrees to seek out and report on other humans, or mucilids, that may be sneaking around. He accepts the deal, thinking he can then escape the planet, but his rocket has been found and dismantled, so he's truly trapped. At the low point of his despair, a thought occurs to him. He starts pretending to be a member of the secret police, pretending to arrest arbitrary robots in the street, taking them to secluded places and unscrewing their heads. In every case, they turn out to be disguised humans like him. The planet was wet, humid, rheumatic, and for robots, unhealthy in the highest degree, they must have rusted in mass. And perhaps, too, there was, as the years passed, an increasing lack of spare parts, and they began to break down, going one by one to the vast cemetery outside town where only the wind rang their death knell over sheets of crumbling metal. That was when the computer, seeing its ranks melt away, seeing its reign endangered, had conceived the most ingenious machination. 
from its enemies, from the spies dispatched to destroy it. He began to build his own army, its own agents, its own people. Not one of those who were unmasked could betray it. Not one of them dared attempt to contact others, other men having no way of knowing that they weren't robots, and even if he did find out about this one or that, he'd be afraid that at the first overture the other men would turn him in. In other words, the computer had filled up its society with disguised humans, the very agents that had been sent to investigate it. All the actual robots had rusted away long ago. Were there any robots left among those ironclad minions? I seriously doubt it. And the zeal with which they prosecuted men, that too became clear. For being men themselves, they had to be more robot-like than the authentic robots. Hence that fanatical hatred displayed by my lawyer. Hence that dastardly attempt to turn me in by the man I had first unmasked. Oh, what fiendishness of coils and circuitry was here. What electrical finesse. After further investigation, Tiki finds that even the computer itself is not really a machine. Sitting inside is a bureaucrat shuffling paperwork, following, and probably misinterpreting, instructions whose exact purpose and details he lost track of long ago. Tiki solves the whole problem by calling a giant assembly in the town square and having everyone unscrew their neighbors' heads at once, finally revealing the truth to all. If you're a listener of this podcast, I probably don't have to do too much explanation of Lem's allegory. The totalitarian robot society with its violent hatred for outsiders clearly represents communism, down to the details of the propaganda play, the lawyer's behavior, etc. The most interesting aspect to think about is that Lem's central thesis, that communist countries are filled with people who are not communists at all at their core, is in a sense proven by the story's mere publication. After all, a true believer in the Polish censor's office would have clearly recognized the allegory and blocked the publication of the story. But the sci-fi dressing gave them just enough plausible deniability to claim they missed that aspect and accept it as just a zany comedy about alien robots. And now for this final segment of the podcast, my uh, co-host Manuel is going to step out from behind the quotes he's been reading and uh, make some personal comments on the topic. What do you think? Uh, this guy was a real entrepreneur. You know, he fa- figured out a way to communicate something that was practically prohibited, but found a way to reach out his audience and make him laugh and understand what his message was, because he was related to real life stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on, on one level, this is just, you know, a really hilarious book, you know, with lots of humor about the aliens and robots and things. But on the other hand, he was able to describe, you know, things that were happening in communist Poland that a normal writer probably wouldn't be allowed to write about. You know, I, I was struck by the similarity between the, the persecution of the Musilids and in the story we talked about today and in the last episode, the persecution of the gusanos or worms, you know, the mm-hmm. disloyal Cubans, um, which, of course, you know, happened in real life in Cuba. And at the time, you know, a Cuban couldn't have just written about it in the same way that, that Lem wrote his story here. Mm. And I have seen that uh, done, too, by um, uh, painters, for example. They express themselves in a way that sometimes they can't express, they can't openly express it, but they... Uh, can paint things that are really sending a message to what they want to say. And people eventually figure it out, you know? Yeah, yeah, there is this general sort of uh, 
craftiness of the various ways people try to get around the censorship in communist countries. And, you know, I think uh, the story we talked about today and the, the works of Stanislaw Lamb are one of the greatest examples of that. Wow. And I suppose Poland is much freer today? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, now that they're not totally controlled by the uh, Soviet Union like they were at the time Lem wrote this, uh, obviously things have changed a lot there. And it's interesting also because, you know, in the story it talks about how people who, you know, are really people underneath are pretending to be robots to please the government. And I think after the communist government in Poland fell, we saw that a lot of the people who had to masquerade as loyal communists, in a sense, took off their robot heads and suddenly revealed that they weren't really communists at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember actually when that was happening uh, in the 80s, was that right? Yeah, late 80s, early yeah. 90s. Yeah. That, that was uh, quite amazing time to live through. Yeah, yeah, it was. Anyway, if you enjoyed our summary of this hilarious story, be sure to check out the rest of Stanislaw Lem's Star Diaries, as well as his numerous other works. Whether you're a science fiction fan, a student of communism, someone who enjoys wacky humor, or a bit of each of those, Lem is definitely an author worth checking out. And this concludes your story of communism for today.